Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Chapters 33 through 36 of Second Chronicles are the final section of this book. And the events are going to march very steadily toward the destruction of the temple and the exile of the people. We see once again that God is the only one who remains faithful. The humans absolutely do not. We pick up in chapter 33 with Manasseh's reign. The reign of Manasseh given here in Second Chronicles differs pretty significantly from the account we see in Second Kings chapter 21. He comes to power at 15 years of age. He's going to reign for 55 years, so quite a long reign. He is an evil king. He returns to pagan worship and to the abominable practices of those that had been driven out before God's people when they took over the promised land. He engages in overtly sexual worship practices and even in human sacrifice, not just human sacrifice, but the actual sacrifice of his very own children. He even takes those pagan gods and puts them right in the temple that Solomon built. He leads Judah to become worse than the people that God had destroyed before them. I mean, there's just nothing good to be said here about Manasseh. Assyria attacks and wins, then takes Manasseh captive back to Babylon. Um, There's a a short-term foreshadowing of what is coming later here. Um, He repents and is restored. He becomes religiously faithful, but many of the people remain pagan. And then right here at the end, Manasseh dies, and his son Ammon succeeds him. Ammon is going to only reign for two years, and he's going to continue to be an evil king. He's assassinated by his very own servants, um, who then are themselves um, killed because they have uh, assassinated the Davidic king, the one in the line of David. As we move into chapter 34, we now get King Josiah, who is the son of Ammon. Um, He is crowned at at eight years of age, and he's going to reign for 31 years. He's going to be a good king. We find his story in chapter 34, verse 1, through chapter 35, verse 27. Like several other accounts, Josiah's story um, has a number of movements to it, like you could break his reign up into um, stories, into sections, and it's going to include a climax of faithfulness and then a, a decline right at the end. At a very early age, around 16 years, he becomes a devout follower of God. At 20 years old, he's going to begin the religious cleansing of the country, tearing down the altars, killing the pagan priests and the unfaithful ones. Um, he even burns their bones on their very own altars and then has the burned bones crushed into powder or dust. He wants them to be completely destroyed and gone. In the 18th year of his reign, when he's 26 years old, Hilkiah, who is the high priest, discovers a book of the law. We believe probably the book of Deuteronomy. 
and he finds it while he's putting other things in order because Josiah has restored him as the high priest. He's unpacking money in a secure area and finds this book of the law. Um, the account follows very closely what we have in 2 Kings 22, verse 8 through 23, verse 3. However, verses 32 and 33 are unique to the 2 Corinthians account. The king is moved by what he finds in this book of the law. He feels convicted that the people are not living correctly. He instructs everyone to repent and to seek God for what they should do next. They then go and consult with the prophet Huldah, who is the wife of Shalom. I want you to note that this is a female prophet, even here in the Old Testament. And the word that they receive from her is that judgment is coming. Some of this has already been written. It's going to happen, but it's now going to be delayed because of the faithfulness that they are experiencing under Josiah's reign. It won't happen quite as quickly as it would have if they had continued to be all evil. They do repent. They renew the covenant. Um, and Josiah never turns away from the faith. He's going to make some poor military decisions um, but, and not listen, but he, he doesn't defect from the faith. Moving into chapter 35, Judah now celebrates the Passover. This is only the second time that observance of the Passover has been mentioned in all of the chronicler stories. So in both first and second chronicles, the Passover, remember, is the story around which their whole identity centers. So if you're not faithfully observing what makes you who you are, it then becomes easy to not be who you are supposed to be. So by not observing Passover, they forget that God has delivered them. It becomes easier to look to other gods and other religious practices. When they observe the Passover here in chapter 35, Josiah provides everything necessary. He provides all of the sacrifices for the people, just as God did with Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, and just as Jesus did for us. Josiah's Passover, we're told, surpasses even that of any other king, including David and Solomon. The precedent here extends all the way back to Samuel, who predates the monarchy itself. And remember that Samuel is the one who warned them of all the failures of the monarchy and what would be coming down the road at some point, all of which have in fact come true. This is the same year that they discover the book of the law. So we're still in year 18 of Josiah's reign. He's now 31 years old and he's going to reign for 13 more years. However, Josiah's reign does end badly. He's going to choose to go to war with the Egyptian king, Necho. Um, and King Necho tries to warn him, like, hey, I don't have any beef with you. Why don't you stay over there? I'll, I'll stay over here. We're not told why, but Josiah absolutely will not turn back. He seems insistent on attacking the king of Egypt. This may be misplaced religious fervor, because remember, the Egyptians were the ones who had oppressed and enslaved the Hebrew people. They've just celebrated the Passover, which is their liberation from Egypt. Maybe Josiah now feels they need to conquer them, part of like a payback, um, or a, we need to, to destroy them to drive them out before us. But it is short-sighted. It is not, um, according to Second Corinthians, what... 
um, the book wants us, not what God wants them to do. The battle here that happens is on the plain of Megiddo. Um, we all talk about in in the end the great battle of Armageddon that will come. That Armageddon is really Harmageddo. Um, Har means mountain, so it's on the mountain of Megiddo that overlooks the plain of Megiddo. So a lot of important battles and conflicts have happened here. So it is, of course, it makes sense that the final vision of John the Revelator would be that in the end, another great battle happens here on this plain. In this battle, Josiah is wounded by an arrow. He is carried home in his chariot of his second in command, his deputy. He dies in Jerusalem from the wound that he received in battle. All of Judah mourns for him. Even the prophet Jeremiah writes a lament. And here we have the beginning of writing down and capturing those laments in writing instead of them just being extemporaneous. As we move into the final chapter, chapter 36, we now um, enter a very quick and steep decline. Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, comes to reign. He only is going to reign for three months because the king of Egypt is now going to take over. We should never have gone to battle with him, and we wouldn't be in this situation. He requires tribute, um, and he's going to install Jehoahaz's brother, Eliakim, as king. He's going to change Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. I know I'm butchering the names, doing the best I can. Um, Jehoahaz gets taken to Egypt as a slave while his brother is made a vassal king. Jehoiakim, the former Eliakim, is 25 years old when he comes to power. He's going to reign for 11 years, all as a vassal king, simply doing exactly what Egypt tells him to do. Then King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is going to attack and take Jehoiakim captive and steal um, some of the temple items. Jehoiakim um, came to his reign at eight years old. Uh, now we have a new one. Jehoiachin, J-E-H-O-I-A-C-H-I-N, comes to be king at eight years of age. He's only going to reign three months and 10 days. He's going to continue to be a bad king. He's going to try to rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to stomp him down pretty quickly and take him off to Babylon so he can't cause trouble anymore. Then we get King Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the brother of Jehoiachin, who's just been taken off into captivity. Zedekiah will be a vassal king. Um, but he'll manage to stay in this role for 11 years, all under the control of Babylon. He's an evil king. Um, Jeremiah tries to save the country, um, but the king just will not listen. He, too, decides to rebel against the king of Babylon, and it's not going to go well. Here in Second Chronicles, this rebellion is actually portrayed as rebelling against God, against Jeremiah, and against King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Verse 16 says, there was no remedy. There's just no fixing what he has set his mind to do and the result that's going to come. 
We see the Babylonians also being referred to as the Chaldeans. It's simply another way of referring to the Babylonians. Babylon was their capital city. Chaldea was the region. So they're becoming a a large empire, but they're eventually going to be known um, as the Babylonian Empire and not the Chaldean Empire. As we conclude the chapter in in the next to the last portion, the temple in Jerusalem becomes the center of the destruction description that um, the chronicler gives us. They kill indiscriminate of age or gender. They even kill right in the temple. They plunder the temple treasury as well as the um, palace treasury. They burn the temple down and as well as the royal palaces, and they even destroy the wall of Jerusalem. So they're um, laying waste to the city. Those who survive are going to go into exile as slaves. They and their children will remain slaves to the Babylonian Empire until the Persian Empire comes and overthrows them 70 years later. All of the witnesses to the world that they are God's people are now gone. All of those signs under the monarchy that said, we are the people of God. We have, this is our king anointed by God but God is our ultimate king. Things like the temple, a good and prosperous economy, the wealth that they had accumulated under Solomon, and glory and honor that came um, has all been destroyed now. The only sign of hope, the only sign of God's enduring presence and faithfulness is that the land gets a Sabbath. It gets the Sabbath rest it always should have been getting under the system that was established way back in the Pentateuch, way back at the beginning, where you had every seven years, you had a Sabbath year, and then every 49 years, you had a grand Sabbath and a reset, so that the land creation was even getting a break from the hard toil. It hadn't been, but now, with the unfaithful people removed, the land creation gets a Sabbath. Second Chronicles ends with a message of hope and freedom, um, a focus on God's faithfulness, because in the first year of the King Cyrus of Persia's reign, in chapter 36, verses 22 and 23, King Cyrus gives an edict um, that he intends to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and he invites all the people to go home and to help make this happen. So the book ends with this hope and this promise. The future remains open. Descendants of David yet exist so that all God has promised might eventually come to pass. Um, We believe that one of the reasons King Cyrus of Persia may have let the the Hebrew people go home had to do with his faith. Zoroastrianism was the faith of the Persian Empire. They had some similarities in their faith with the Hebrew faith, including one God, the struggle against good and evil. But the Persian Empire did not believe in forcing the peoples they conquered to stop practicing their faith or to begin to practice Zoroastrianism, they honored the faith of the conquering peoples and felt like religion could help those people be more happy and settled in the world that they found themselves in. So he may go, oh, look, 
the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, they all tried to suppress this faith, but that's not happy and productive. I'm going to send all these people home and help them rebuild so that they will find it more palatable to be part of my empire. So with King Cyrus coming into rule, we see kind of a reversal of fortune. So this decline and going into um, exile is going to be relieved. So the chronicler cannot finish without finishing on just a little bit of a word of hope after everything that has been going downhill so steeply for quite a long time. And with that, the chronicler concludes his work. (music) 